Good evening, guys. How are you doing? For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt. I'm one of the student ministers here at Snack, and I've got the long weekend hall, so thank you for being here. Um, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 tonight, so if you want to keep that open, uh, we're going to be there for most of the time. But before we get into there, I've got a, a question for you. I ummed and art about whether to ask this question. It's a bit of a dangerous question. It could have some negative results, but I kind of figured Phil's away, so we might as well just have a crack while he is not here. So here's the question. Are you ready? If you wanted to destroy this church, how would you do it? I'm, I'm talking like totally take it out. You are a sleeper agent. You want to take it down from the inside. You want to see the ministry of snack completely destroyed. How would you do it? It's an uncomfortable question, or at least it should be. I don't think you guys are taking this seriously. <laughs> I asked this question to my gospel team earlier this year, and I got a whole bunch of very, very insightful and very good answers. I also got some very, very bad answers, one of them including, I would set Phil on fire. <laughs> but thankfully, she's no longer at this church, and her last name is no longer Veron, so <laughs> Phil will be safe. And frankly, a fire in this place would be good for us because we'd actually maybe be able to build something that can fit us all in. So some fire isn't too much of a drama for us here at Snack, but there are other fires that are. Uh, There are other fires that are going to be much more dangerous to our church community. Uh, And one of them is one that we're going to be spending a bit of time about tonight thinking about. Uh, And that's basically the fracturing of the relationship between church leaders and the people that they serve. Now... I am, what, 27, and I have been in a number of church divisions. Maybe I just got the the short straw and I've just been in all the wrong places. Uh, And I'm not talking like, you know, church divisions like two people are fighting over who got to do morning tea or who was left off the roster or something. Like, I'm talking church-wide, full-blown wars, factions starting, people calling each other horrible, horrible things and accusing each other of sins that are just mind-boggling and, frankly, impossible And in all of them, in all the ones that I've been in, there has been a breakdown of trust between the church leaders, the minister, and his congregation. And so if you want to seriously damage a church, then you need to get in between those two groups of people and take it out. Now, some of you at this point, right, are probably thinking, okay, that's that's good news, that's that's great information to know, Matt, but I kind of figured that sermons were for building the church up, not taking it down. You would be right, and we will get there, but for the moment, what I want us to understand before we dive into the passage is I want us to feel something of the tension that was happening in Corinth at this time when Paul's writing the letter. A divide has been growing between Paul and the Corinthian church, and the Corinthians are becoming increasingly suspicious of Paul and his ministry. They don't think he's the best man for the job. They've started looking at alternatives. They've kind of put the job offer out in the paper. And they're just not taking him seriously because, well, he's frankly not that impressive. And so one of the things we've seen over the last couple of weeks is Paul has been, against his better judgment, he's been trying to prove to them that he is the real deal, that he should be taken seriously. Now, by his own admission, he says that the way he's going about it is, frankly, foolish, petty, and stupid but it is the only way you Corinthians are going to understand and listen. And so he becomes a fool and actually starts boasting about his own credentials so that they would see that he is not just some half-baked, second-rate minister. And so when we hit our passage in verse 11, we're actually hitting the end of a very long argument, and he summarizes it for us brilliantly. I have become a fool 
You forced me to it. Let me keep reading. I should have been endorsed by you, since I am not in any way inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of an apostle were performed with great endurance among you, not only signs, but also wonders and miracles. In other words, I should not have to prove to you that I am the real deal. You saw the signs. You saw that I was a true apostle of God. Great definition before. Somebody who has personally met Jesus, has been commissioned, empowered, told to go out and speak on his behalf. You knew that I was a true apostle. You should have backed me. But instead, you rejected me. And you chased after a bunch of flashy pretenders. And so he asks in verse 13, how did you get to this place? We treated you exactly the same as every other church. We withheld nothing. As a matter of fact, the only thing we did for you is that we did it all for free. And yet, for some funny reason, that's a sin that we need to repent of. It's a messed up situation. You can sort of understand why Paul is kind of tearing his hair out at this point. But before we kind of jump on board Paul's train, it's probably important to take a step back and have a think about what the Corinthians might be thinking at this point. Because what they're saying isn't necessarily outside the realm of possibility. Scenario, you're walking along the street, maybe you're down in Cogra, and this guy comes up to you out of the blue. Bit of a shabby suit, looks like it was bought in the 90s. And he says, look, I've got this brand new car for you. $500, I'll give it to you straight here, straight now. What is the first thing you think when that happens? Con man. What, there is something wrong with this car. Shoddy goods. Right? Same sort of thinking going on here for the Corinthians. If you aren't going to charge Paul, then what you're offering mustn't be all that good. There has to be a catch. Something is wrong with what you're giving us. No, Paul, we only want the conference speakers that speak at mega churches that we need to book two years in advance, thanks. Your second rate, your small time, we are not interested. And what we start to see here in this tension is again the issue that the Corinthians have been struggling with throughout this whole letter. And you should have been able to pick this up. They are still judging ministry, gospel ministry, by worldly standards. And so because of that, they are deeply suspicious of Paul's ministry, even though it is the real ministry. And so when we get to verse 14, it is obvious that there is a rift growing and there is some tension between the two parties And all of it has been caused by the Corinthians' attitude to Paul. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time here tonight is we kind of have that picture, that that context sitting in the background. I want us to look at that relationship. I want to look at Paul's ministry. I then want to look at the Corinthians' response. And hopefully as we kind of look at those two elements, we're going to be put in a position where we can avoid a similar situation ever developing here at Snack among us. So... Let's have a look at the first of two. We're going to look at the selfless spending of the minister. Verse 14 starts a new section. He says, now I am ready to come to you this third time. Means something's going to go down. He is preparing to get there, which means this issue can't be ignored. Stuff is going to come to the surface. There's going to be trouble. And Paul is concerned. Now, now quick question at this point. If that is the case, Paul knows his attention. He knows he's about to come. He's warning them that he's coming. What do you think Paul should do at this point? How do you think he's going to alleviate the situation? Here's what I reckon he should have done. I reckon he should start charging. The Corinthians want to pay him. They'll start listening to him. And we know from 1 Corinthians 9 all the way back when in a previous letter 
that actually it's the minister's right to be paid for the spiritual duties he performs. So really, three good reasons, no sinfulness, they'll listen to you. I think that's a pretty good and sweet deal. If Paul was going to do this, I think simple solution, problem solved. And he's a smart guy. So why on earth does he say this in verse 14? I know, I'll just throw some more kerosene into the fire. I will not burden you, for I'm not seeking what is yours, but you. He says, then I'm not going to change my policy, Corinthians. Why? Because I'm not after your possessions. I'm after you. You can play shop all you want with these pretender apostles, but there is something much deeper going on here between you and I that you don't understand. We aren't here to barter for the gospel. There is a spiritual reality. Spiritual reality is that I'm your parent, you are my children, and I'm seeking your good in the faith. And that's why he gives the reason that he does at the end of verse 14. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Let's stop and think about this for a second. How many of you think of Phil as your parent? That's just a little creepy, isn't it? What about Troy? (laughs) He's so young and innocent. What Paul is not doing here is he's not advocating a Catholic system of ministry where you've got Father Phil and Father Troy and you've got this kind of all-hallowed, oh-perfect kind of leadership and the rest of us plebs down here just doing our thing. And we actually we know that that's going to be true because Jesus himself back in Matthew 23 says, don't call anyone your father because we only have one father and he's in heaven, he's your God. Um, so maybe don't call Phil your father. Just throwing it out there, Father Phil. Um, what Paul is actually trying to do here is he's actually trying to establish a way to view and understand ministry. Uh, And I think it's a picture that we all understand uh, because it's a parent-child relationship. Now, not many of you here tonight are parents. Those of you who are will get this, I think, far more keenly than the rest of us. But all of us have been children. And so we know that the parent-child relationship really kind of flows one way. The parent goes out and earns the money, buys you the Xbox, and everything's happy right? Food, rent, everything like that, it all comes from the parent, goes to the child, and if they're a good parent, they're not going to charge you rent or board, at least not when you're five years old, okay? Maybe when you're 15, 16, you get a job and they actually want you to learn to become an adult. But frankly, you have that asymmetric movement from parent to child. And you know what's crazy about the whole thing, right? Parents want to do it. Most of the time, depending on what you've been up to recently, right? There's something about the parent role that that makes them want to see their children grow and prosper. And some of you actually would have been the beneficiaries of some tremendous sacrifices. I know of parents who've worked two jobs just to get their kids to go to a good school. There is no end to what a parent will do for their child. And so that's why Paul says, I don't want what you've got. I don't care about an Xbox. I want you. Literally, they're your souls. So he says in verse 15, I'll most gladly spend and be spent for you. Why? Because I, as the parent, am looking for your spiritual good as the child. And so he summarizes this idea so beautifully in verse 19. You have thought all along, suspicious Corinthians, that we were defending ourselves to you. No, in the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ and everything dear friends, is for building you up. And so Paul's guiding principle as he ministers to the Corinthians is that he will be spent on their behalf so that they will be built up in Christ.
It's a beautiful picture. It's also a really hard picture to put into practice, isn't it? The high calling for the minister, isn't it? And and by the way, when I say minister, I'm not talking just our paid staff here at Snack. I'm talking about anybody who is in a position of pastoral responsibility over somebody else. Gospel team leaders, that means you. Fuel and Ignite leaders, Sunday school leaders, that means you. If you are in that sort of position, then what you are called to do as a minister of the gospel is to spend and be spent in the service of other people. Not grudgingly, but willingly. Because you want to see them built up in Christ. You want to see them mature and become like Christ. And I think on a good day, most of us will be like, yep, that's the game. We get it. That's what we're on about. But I want to ask the question, I want you to ask the question of yourself tonight, is that what drives the ministry that you do here at Snack? Because I think more often than not, we will lose sight of that overarching reality that we are here to build people up. And our service ultimately turns around and we expect something in return. Now, one of two things is going to happen then. We're going to stop spending because, hey, it's about me and my comfort. Those guys can look after themselves. Or, or more likely, your service is going to start to become selfishly motivated. You start looking for return, something that will come back. Now, that might not be money. That's what the Corinthians were talking about. But it could be some other things. It could be self-fulfillment. I just get a really good buzz out of helping people. could be recognition and praise. Oh, he's so good at that. She is amazing at that or it could be to climb the ranks so that you have more influence and power in the church when we start thinking in terms of what i'm not getting out of this relationship that's when you've misunderstood the work of ministry and you've lost the parent mentality that says it is my joy to be poured out for your sake so that you will become more like christ because that's what ministry is about It's the reason we labour, it's the reason we toil, it's the reason we strive. It's so that those that we serve will become like Christ and be with him on the last day when he returns. They will remain in the faith and so receive eternal life forever. And if that's where your thinking is at, then you don't need another reward because you have helped keep a soul uh, persevering to the end. Uh, And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's the thing that ministers do. It's the thing that people who serve others in the church do. And it's also the thing that the Corinthians haven't understood. So they remain suspicious of Paul because they do not get why he is doing why he is doing it. And it looks like they have taken it to extremes. If you have a look at verse 16, it seems to me that what they're saying is that Paul has done all this pro bono so that he can get them later on. Now, I don't know whether many of you have bought a fridge. You probably haven't. Um, It's like a good guy's ad. Buy this fridge, 12 months for payment free. You can cruise on your fridge and not give us a cent for a year, and then they smash you with the interest later on. That's basically what they think Paul is doing here. And Paul is just dumbfounded. I mean, look at some of the questions he asks. Verse 17, did I take advantage of you by anyone I sent you? I urged Titus to come, and I sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Didn't we walk in the same spirit and in the same footsteps? The implied answer is yes, yes, we did. And no, we didn't. We didn't take advantage of you. We actually came in the same spirit and we served you for your building up. Corinthians, you have got this situation entirely wrong. And so when we hit verse 20, we begin to understand why Paul is so concerned. He's concerned and fearful for two things. He's fearful that one... When he arrives, they won't be 
as he wants them to be. That they will still be sinful, that they will still be worldly, that they will still be judgmental. And the reason we know this is because of verse 21 where he says, I'm worried that I will grieve for many who have sinned before and have not repented of moral impurity, sexual morality, and the promiscuity they practiced. It's the first one. And then two, vice versa, he's fearful that he isn't going to be what they want. That the Corinthians will still think that he is weak and unimpressive and not worth the time. Now the thing to get about both those fears is that both of them are Corinthian problems. It isn't a case of kind of Paul wants them to be this way and the Corinthians want Paul to be this way and they've just got to work out a compromise like a nice marriage or something like that. This is actually fundamentally based in the Corinthians' unwillingness to acknowledge the authority that Paul has over them as an apostle of God, as a minister to them in their church. They don't respect him, so they don't listen to him and they stay in sin. And so when he turns up, Paul is deeply, deeply concerned that there is going to be massive backlash. Matt read it out to us before and it was brilliant. I want to read it out again. I am fearful that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I do not know whether you have been in a church where the majority of the congregation has been unhappy with the minister, but this list pretty well sums it up. Factions, fighting, it gets ugly, and Paul is so fearful that that's what's going to go down when he arrives. And yet for all of that, That is not the thing that he is actually most concerned about. Have a look at verse 21. I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence, and I'll grieve for many who have sinned before and have not repented. He is fearful for some strange reason that he'll be humiliated by God in their presence. I mean, what what does that mean? Does it mean that he will look weak and unimpressive again? He won't be able to show off his mad apostle skills? I think the answer for us is actually in the for at the beginning of verse 20. Let's get technical. For, it's a joining word. It's going to connect two things, verse 19 and verse 20. Verse 19 is all about Paul's building up. And then verse 20 is all about Paul's fear. So as I read this, the question that comes to my mind is, why is Paul's concern for the upbuilding of the Corinthians? Why does that naturally flow to his fear that things are going to hit the fan? And I think as we read on and we look at chapter 13, verse 10, we get our answer. So have a flick over there. It's just on the next page. He says this, This is why I am writing these things while absent, that when I am there, I will not use severity in keeping with the authority the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. So you see, as part of his role to build up the church, Paul has been given authority by God to be severe. That means rebuke. That means discipline. That means punish people who are being willfully disobedient and remaining sinful. Okay? He can do it. He's allowed to do it. But he doesn't want to do it. I mean, frankly, um, no parent enjoys disciplining their child. And if you're a parent, you'll understand that. He doesn't want his visit when he turns up for the third time to be one of pain. He actually wants it to be a, a time and a visit of joy. Because he loves these people. Which is why he's writing to them as he does ahead of time. So that when he gets there, they will have repented and he won't need to lay the smack down. Now, when we think about that, we actually have a bit of a lesson from the Corinthians to learn, I think. Sort of a case of don't do what these guys did. The lesson is actually quite simple. And you're young guys, so I don't know whether you're going to like this lesson or not. Listen to your leaders. Why? Because they work for the maturity, your maturity, in the faith. 
And so when you work against them, what you're actually doing is you're working against yourself because you're actually trying to sabotage their efforts that they're making for your spiritual good. And it's actually even worse than that because it's not just you that you're sabotaging. You're actually sabotaging the people that are sitting on your right and on your left because your attitude to your leaders is infectious. It spreads. People start to think the same thing as you do and you actually start to introduce that rift that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. Christ has so structured the church that he has given them apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers. Does this sound familiar? This is Ephesians 4, right? He's given all those people to the church to build them up in their maturity to Christ-likeness. He has set aside those people to devote their whole energies to your upbuilding in the faith. They're not distracted by secular jobs. Their main role is to encourage you and keep you persevering to the end so that when Christ returns, you will be granted the crown of life. And I think what we forget, uh, and maybe some of us not necessarily have forgotten but just haven't learnt yet, is that when we become part of a local church, what we're actually doing is we're signing up and signing on the dotted line and saying, yes, I understand that that's what church is about I'm willing to be part of that system with all the benefits but also with all the restrictions that it brings. Why? Because I trust that the way that God has designed his church, the way that Jesus has gifted his church, is the way that I'm going to be best matured to become more like Christ. Now, will there be hard times? Of course there will be. Your leaders are sinful, but so are you. And I guarantee you, at at least one point, you will disagree with the decisions your leaders make. Uh, there will be hard conversations, particularly the times when they feel the need to rebuke you about a particular sin that you're either ignoring, unaware of, or, or unwilling to face. And at that point, it's going to be very, very easy to suspect our leaders of selfish motives. That's the Corinthian suspicion again, right? Because they're not seeing things the right way, which, by the way, is mainly code for my way. And if the Corinthians have really taught us anything, it's to remember that there needs to be a healthy amount of self-doubt in our own reading of the situation when it comes to drawing those sorts of conclusions. Because Paul, really, frankly, was God's gift to the Corinthians at this point because he was helping them see sin in their life they had not seen and he was actually intentionally bringing it to their awareness so they could deal with it, so they wouldn't actually slip into sin and then fall away from their faith in Christ. Paul, God's gift to Corinthians, it's the same with us. Same with our ministers, not just the paid staff, but the ones that serve us in our gospel teams, Fuel Ignite, whatever it is. And so my exhortation to you guys this evening is to make that service rendered to you, given to you on behalf, make it a joy rather than a burden, because they are here and in it for your good. And so the way that you do that is now, you make up your mind to heed their words of encouragement as well as their words of rebuke, because both will come to you in the fullness of time, as you stay part of a church community. Respect them. Listen to their advice. By all means, be honest with them. You can disagree with them, but remember they labor for you in the Lord. And so at the end of the day, they are here to be submitted to, to be respected, so that the work they do, not just for you, but for the people around you, can be one that is made easy and then prospers the whole of us as a church. So let me bring all this together. We've really only talked about two main points tonight, um, and that's okay. Two is a lot of points to kind of remember. First, if you are a leader in this church in any capacity, you are to spend yourselves for the sake of other people. Why? Because you want to see them built up in Christ. You want to see them make it to the end and receive salvation. And then two, 
If you are led by somebody at this church, which is all of us, by the way, then be led willingly. Accept and trust their leadership. Don't throw suspicions and kind of weird claims and, and make things up in your mind. I can understand that in other churches, not in this church. We have wonderful, wonderful ministers who are frankly really just loving and selfless people. So make their, joy, their work a joy rather than a burden. Um, when those two things come together and we have selfless spending and we have willing submission, what we actually have in our church is harmony. We have growth. We have mutual joy as we all work together to strive towards Christ. Sin is dealt with. The cause of the gospel is no longer frustrated. The church functions as Jesus would have it function, and it brings glory to God. Those are the two things. Spend selflessly for the upbuilding of others. Willingly submit and listen and respect your leaders. That is how we maintain a harmonious church. I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, this is both a wonderful teaching and a very hard teaching to understand and accept and obey. And I pray that you will bless us all. Lord, for the leaders in our church, I pray that we will be people who spend ourselves uh, for the good of those around us, that we will be seeking the building up in Christ uh, of the people here in everything that we do. Lord, free us from selfishness. Free us from a desire to be paid back in kind for the deeds that we do. Instead, Lord, I pray that we will do all things for your glory and for the joy of seeing our brothers and sisters with us on the last day. And Father, for those of us who are led, I pray that we will submit to our leaders and delight in the fact that you have given us people to care for us in this way. I pray that you will help us make their work a joy rather than a burden, that we will listen, that we will respect, that we will willingly accept all the words that they have for us. Amen.